0: we became very self-sufficient that a lot of that and had no idea what was going on in the world or outside those those boundaries. Yeah, and the same with the white fellas out there. Only now when they're reading the book, they're all shocked. They said, we had no idea. This this went on. Okay, my name's Leslie Williams. I'm an Aboriginal woman from Southeast Queensland. i I grew up on the Sherberg Aboriginal community in, in southeast Queensland.
1: Queensland being of course a state in Australia, it's huge, it's in the northeastern corner.
0: Grew up there during the nineteen forties, fifties and sixties before being contracted out to be to work as a domestic.
1: What's a domestic? How did Leslie Williams come to be one? And it's understating to say much, much more. I'm James Milsom. And this is the rule book. What does it look like? What did it look like at the time, Sherberg?
0: Sherberg was just a a very closed community. Uh, It was just basic, where there, you know, you had segregation there, you had. Uh, an area where the Aboriginal people all lived, and yeah, there was a separate area where the white officials lived, and
1: then. So Sherberg, C-H-E-R-B-O-U-R-G, it is, uh, you can Google it if you want to see some images, essentially very simple, small town. It's a settlement, really, uh, purpose-built uh, to contain, really, Aboriginal people from um, far-flung areas in Queensland uh, into one place. More on that a little later.
0: It was very self-contained. We became very self-sufficient that a lot of that and had no idea what was going on in the world or outside those outside those boundaries.
1: And and what year was it that you um, were put to work?
0: I was sent out as a domestic in nineteen
1: sixty four. And you were how old?
0: I was I was uh, 16,
1: just turned 17. And 17 was late, as Leslie told me. She was uh, only sent out so late because she was helping her grandmother look after the younger children in her family. And uh, that was only because her older siblings had already gone. And they'd gone to work as domestics. So let's define that.
0: I was a, a domestic servant, mean like a housemaid. Housemaid where you were, you were contracted out to work for uh, families out on uh, cattle properties, sheep stations, or just ordinary uh, dairy farms, or in in private home white homes in, throughout, throughout Queensland, including down here in Brisbane.
1: So, Leslie's heading out to her new job as a domestic, and what she has in her hand becomes crucial later on.
0: When I was sent out, I carried a, a brown envelope uh, inside the brown envelope was a, a work agreement that was to be signed by the employer between the employer and the government. James, I'm telling you, with all this information I'm just giving you now, it's important for the listeners out there to to re, to know that I only discovered what the, I was carrying in that brown envelope was in 1992.
1: And three decades later, Leslie turned the government document archives upside down to try to find the documents that she had held in her hand on that day.
0: So when we out in 1964, terrified to open the envelope, my, my employer met me at the station out west, it was about a couple of hundred kilometres west of uh, one of the main towns in Queensland, southwest Queensland, and then... Um, you know, everything was fine, was paid pocket money, and the bulk of my wage was to be sent back to be kept in trust for me.
1: Now, on that note, this notion of trust, let's invite another person along to help us tell the story. This is...
0: Tony
2: Woodgett. Uh, I'm the director of the Queensland... Public,
1: Public Interest Law Clearinghouse, but actually at the time that Tony comes into the story, he was working at the Caxton, Caxton Legal, legal Centre.
2: And it's a, a community legal centre that...
1: And you probably Uh, realise, but um, I think they're called different things in different parts of the world, Community Legal Centre, essentially a place you can go to get free legal advice. Tony's going to help answer a few questions. Uh, A couple of the first ones are, why was Leslie sent out to do this work Um, and why didn't she get paid for it? So there's this law that was passed. It only applies to Aboriginal people. As we know, Aboriginal, well, the dictionary definition says that it means the people who were here first. Anyway, this law...
2: It required them to work as uh, as cattlemen and domestics in far fund places, and a percentage of their wage from that work was uh, taken by the government and held in individual bank accounts.
1: And not many of the people who were doing the work knew where their money was going, and even of those who knew where the money
2: was going... It was pretty hard to find out how to get to it. And also, uh, some of that money was used uh, for their own upkeep, for living in the reserves and for general reserve purposes.
1: More on that shortly. Right now, let me tell you that this legislation, it was called the Aboriginal Protection and Restriction on the Sale of Opium Act of 1897... Now, if you just thought to yourself, that needs some explaining, I agree. This is Stephen Gray. He is from Monash University in Melbourne. He lectures in Aboriginal affairs and law and some other stuff.
3: Yeah, well, in the in the 1890s, uh, which was when the first Queensland legislation was passed, 1897, I think, um, the impetus for that first protective legislation was... It was actually well intentioned in a way. It was designed to stop the kind of most obvious, gruesome or horrible things that were happening on the frontier, as far as you know, white stockmen, um, European drovers, other people on the frontier alone, white men, basically on the frontier, kidnapping Aboriginal women and keeping them as sex slaves, raping them, or um, and and also the the issue of. Um, Part of Aboriginal kids, obviously born to white fathers and Aboriginal mothers, was of great concern and really shame, I guess, to the broader population. Um, and part of that was bound up with the idea that opium and alcohol and other drugs were being peddled to Aboriginal people, but that, that, um, it was actually wound up with anti-Asian feeling as well. So a lot of that feeling as far as opium was concerned was directed at Chinese
1: so this legislation only came in like 120 years after the first english ships uh, anchored in sydney and so it's really not that long that white people have been in australia The other thing to note or to remember is in the 1850s or thereabouts, gold was discovered in Australia, uh, much like what's happened in the rest of the world with gold rushes. Same thing happened here. Uh, People came from other parts of the world. They brought opium and shovels, I guess. Coming back to our story, though, that happened in 1897. And around the same time, uh, similar law came in in other parts of Australia, but Leslie's story is all centering around 1964. So we've really got to get a sense of what was happening in Queensland then.
3: This pre-1970s um, was a time when Aboriginal people were seen very differently. Um, they they weren't legally equal in, in many, many ways. They in, they didn't have um, rights to be counted in, in, in the census, for example, um, and all kinds of other sort of equality rights that we take for granted. This was the period of the stolen generations um, when Aboriginal kids or part Aboriginal kids were very frequently taken away from their home environments and brought up in institutions in the kind of the, the justification for that being that um, they would have a better chance of, of, of attaining civilization so-called um, if brought up in that way. So there was a general view of Aboriginal culture as being inferior in the work environment that played out um, with the idea that Aboriginal people were slow workers, that they um, weren't as capable as, as other people, they were legally actually regarded as wards or as, um, you know, there were special, special categories that related to them at that time and so they essentially got less pay than other people for the same work or, um, or sometimes no pay at all.
1: So that's sort of the texture of the social, political and cultural fabric that, that kind of underlay uh, this legislation. Tony can give us a bit of an idea for what, how some people felt.
2: There were many people who were upset with this regime, but they accepted it uh, because um, they had been very much disempowered by the whole structure.
1: Now, quickly back to me stumbling into a question for Leslie. Well,
2: I, I, I get the feeling you didn't understand.
1: Nobody really understood at the time, but you—you you now understand what the legislation was that um, gave them the power to do that trust arrangement.
0: Yeah, at the time, not, i didn't understand because I do we only received limited education, and you didn't dare question. The authorities, because what had what had happened to me, and it happened to older sisters. My and it turns out I found out after doing this research that it happened to my parents and even my grandparents. So it goes back right back until back to the 1890s when all of this uh, this scheme was happening.
1: Okay. A lot of background. Let's now return to the story that we were telling.
0: We were given pocket money. We had no idea how much money we were we were to to be paid. That was all done between the Queensland government and my and the white employer.
1: So eventually, Leslie got married, had three kids, and this stuff sort of bubbled back up later on down the track, as I've kind of alluded to. And the start of it rebubbling, if I can say that, happened at a kind of a weird place. It happened at Neverland. Oh, yeah? Can you take me briefly to, um, to Neverland? <laughs> Just because I can't resist hearing a little bit about it. <laughs>
0: but let me tell you about that. <laughs> it was you... through, by, uh, through an incident at school that, um, she copped some racism and then uh, she's also a fan, very, very strong fan of Michael Jackson's. and So she wrote this letter about... So
1: there was a competition Michael Jackson's Heal the World Foundation had put on. Uh, Leslie's daughter Tammy wrote a letter, uh, which was what you had to do to enter and she won.
0: won this competition, which then she took her and I to Neverland.
1: And that was to become this transformative experience, both for, I think, Leslie and Tammy. And I know that I'm jumping geographically and along the time spectrum a little bit, but Tarantino does it, so as can I. And right now we're back in Leslie's living room.
0: Okay. It was in, I saw an article in the papers in 1991. And then well, I saw the article, I read it, and then I it really didn't... Click with me, and I thought, welfare fund. I'm thinking of the welfare committee in Sherbourg, but then when, and as I read on a bit further down the, mentioned, talked about people who were earning with money in the savings account went into this fund. So then I cut the paper out, and I thought, I wonder what, how, just what got me thinking then. I thought, I've had money there for when I was sent out to these two properties, you know, in the early 60s.
1: And this snapped Leslie into action. She started searching. She was looking for documents, something to prove that that she earned this money and that it hadn't been paid to her. Something to prove where it was and why it wasn't paid to her. She went to government departments. She uh, turned over her own records. She went to family asking for something. Really, she was looking for whatever was in that brown envelope that she held in her hand on the train in 1964. The archives were stacked with documents. They started to pile up. She couldn't get through them all. She started making copies. Eventually, there was a groundswell. She was part of organizing a protest in the center of Brisbane, the capital of Queensland. And all the while, she's writing letters. Letters to
0: all the politicians, officials, in Queensland, and the prominent people, politicians, politicians drawn up, the Secretary General of the Union, and even to Bill Clinton.
1: Leslie later wrote that her shoebox-sized house was just filled with documents. There was paper stacked by the couch, by the beds, in the kitchen, uh, by the TV. Everywhere was paper. And eventually, seemingly out of nowhere, she came upon, well, something that could help. And let's get to that just after this. Okay. Prefacing this break chat with, I sincerely love making this podcast. That much cannot be in doubt. Okay. Moving on. I don't get paid anything to make this and I'm doing it anyway. That's cool. However, what would be really helpful is if I got some financial contribution and what's a way that you can jump in and help support the podcast? Well, it's through this site called Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com. There, you can pledge two dollars or more a month. Each monetary amount um, comes with like a bit of a perk package. Some of them, are like you get bonus content um, with episodes. In some of them, you get uh, access to like a chat. That happens after the episode comes out and it's exclusive. It only happens with other people uh, at a similar echelon and so on and so forth. And there's lots more great, amazing, cool, exciting stuff that is coming. Anyway, if you want to go there, give me a hand. That would be
0: really
1: great. P A T R E O N dot slash The Rulebook or The Rulebook dot X Y Z and follow the links to support The Rulebook. So what did Leslie find in her search, she found a passbook and it contained records of all of the money that she was supposed to have been paid and where it was paid to.
0: And it turned out that my wage when I was sent out in 1964 was three pounds and ten shillings of which I was supposed to I was supposed to receive weekly one pound, one pound ten shillings and the other two pounds to be sent back quarterly to be kept in trust for me at the Sherberg office.
1: This was proof, the proof that Leslie needed. So
2: she got
1: Tony on the phone.
2: I took a statement from her about about this history. We then went through the process of trying to, uh, to obtain... Uh, the government records...
1: Tony and lawyers at the Caxton Legal Service uh, got more documents. They put them together with the documents that Leslie already had. They saw that there were disparities. They saw that there were questions to be asked. So they got this barrister to give advice. Her name, Jean Dalton. She's now a Supreme Court
2: Justice. Uh, And uh, then on Leslie's instructions, we drafted... um, a statement of claim uh, to the Supreme Court to uh, to commence legal proceedings about, against uh, the state of Queensland, and the claim it was for breach of trust.
1: So we've got to get a little bit legal at this point just to have a think about what a trust is as opposed to just the normal dictionary uh, meaning of the word trust. Uh, And there's some relationship there, I guess. So trusts come from old English law, I suppose, when people uh, lived in mud anyway. They are essentially a relationship between a trustee, the person being trusted, and a beneficiary, the person that the person being trusted is supposed to be looking after in some way. I think that a really good way to look at an example of a trust is thinking about Batman. I really love Batman analogies, you may have noticed from past episodes. So essentially, the way I see it anyway, when Mr. and Mrs. Wayne died, uh, Bruce was really in the hands of Alfred the family butler all of the riches of the Wayne family were really being held in trust by Alfred for Bruce and so in that circumstance Alfred was the trustee and Bruce the beneficiary and important to point out the reason why Alfred needed to be in there as an intermediary Bruce was a child so he couldn't have his cash just yet I don't I guess I'm just fearful that you're going to think that I'm that I'm trivializing here. That's not it at all. I like looking at these things from uh, a simpler and different point of view to take the heat out of it a little bit so that we can think about it and understand like what trusts are just in a different context so we can now apply that understanding to the case at hand. So just remembering trustee looks after the whatever beneficiary the one who's meant to get the benefit of it
2: the government is by virtue of this uh, regime is in the role of, of trustee it's it's looking it's it's got control over uh, the people who were subject to that legislation it was controlling some of their money and if it did not properly look after that money, as appears to be the case. The government has breached its duties uh, to the beneficiaries, so to the people who are supposed to be looking after.
1: So before we plunge deeper into this court case, let's have a quick reflection on well, what was in the minds of people in Leslie's position. And did you understand at the time why that there was that deal, why you, you couldn't just get the money in your pocket?
0: I had no idea. You wouldn't, you wouldn't dare question it. You would know, you know, you're going to be contracted out because your older sisters went out to work, and you know a lot of other girls and young boys went out to work. No one questioned it. You, you didn't dare question the white authorities until, well, not you, but if you did, you, you know, you'd be punished, be threatened with put in the. In the, in the dormitories or locked up in jail for daring to question you you know, standing up for your right if an Aboriginal person dared to, or misbehaved or dared um, to back answer to talk back to a white official that's where they were sent get up on your family
1: and technically there was a system to get your hands on your own money but not that many people knew what it was or how to do it or felt comfortable to do it but there was like a there was a guy a government guy who was appointed as the protector of the Aboriginal people and you had to go to this protector person
0: and then I say you'd like to withdraw some money so your name would go down and you'd wait down there It it was Fridays. every Friday you're allowed to go down to you know go down to the office and check to see if your name is on the list which was in like elect- giving, granting you permission to go gra- to withdraw some some money. So there was a limit on what you could withdraw. Uh, I think it was ten pounds. Anything over ten pounds, you had to get per- permission. Had to come from the director, and you had to explain why you want that amount of money.
1: Money that you had earned. Anyway, Leslie did have this understanding the whole time and and held it throughout the process we've been talking about that this wasn't just about her.
0: As I was getting more and more information, elders coming to our meetings, I realised it it's not about me, it's about thousands of other Aboriginal people. I wanted to highlight and I wanted to bring it out, bring it out into the open so that the wider community, all the white fellas out there, they were always under the impression that Aboriginal people are lazy, never worked, don't like to work, they love, just like to live on handouts, which it was never, ever the case.
1: And in the course of her investigations and preparing for her case, Leslie had actually figured out that the money that was earned by herself and these thousands of other Aboriginal people had been used. By the state,
0: loans were given out to various hospital boards around the state. They are built new wings. They built kitchens. And in fact, one hospital was actually built.
1: And as Tony told me, some of the money that was being earned by all of these people was being used to, to
2: um, run the the reserves, the missions, and the reserves. Which is, um, which in the sense means that the uh, the um, inmates, to use that word, were paying for their own care.
1: And we're about to come back to this idea of protection versus control. You and I, you might be thinking, are responsible for paying our own way as well. The big difference is that, broadly anyway, we get to choose where we go, where we work, where we live and how we live. Aboriginal people under this regime weren't given that choice. Here's Stephen.
3: The missions would take... take Social security or or wages and um, use it in ways that they thought were for the best of the best interest of the original people. So they'd build, you know, toilet blocks or accommodation or whatever, which to them was fair, but I guess these are the kinds of services that government is supposed to be providing and does provide, um, for
2: the general communities. So they were paying for the general upkeep of the of the reserve that they were required to stay in. They had no choice. They were controlled uh, and uh, had to stay uh, right. in those uh, in those
1: places. So with that in mind, let's head back to court. As we know, Leslie's gone to court asking a judge to make an order to say that there was a trust, that the trustee was the government, she was the beneficiary, and that the government had breached the trust in not giving her her money. But it didn't get to court. The case was settled.
0: We sat around the table and negotiated, and I said, "I'm happy to, you know, well, well, I'm not sure. If, I can't remember now the exact legal words, but withdrew the withdrew the um, uh, the writ or claim, whatever it's, it's called, on the condition that the government moves forward and address this issue."
1: Effectively, Leslie was saying. I'll give up my claim if you, the government, deal with everyone else's.
0: If we went down the path individually, we'd be still going through the courts. And it will be tying up the courts with tens of millions of dollars being spent. And a lot of our people are then passing away without getting seeing any form of money, let alone any acknowledgement. And
1: I asked Leslie, after all of these years of campaigning, of activism, of writing letters, of searching, of trawling through documents, of being bounced around between politicians and lawyers and all of these different people, let alone of working all of that time without getting paid, did she get any money?
0: Well, there was no money. But to me, it was the acknowledgement and the letter of apology from the minister for for the hurt. That I was subjected to, and not only that, the then the um, couple of m- months later the go, you know governments were then working out ways on how to address this, and that's when in 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 may nineteen uh, in two thousand and two the bG government then made an offer and they made an offer to all indigenous workers at subbridge on Torres Strait Islanders who had their their wages and savings controlled from 1897 right through to 1970s. The offer was for $55.4 million. And they worked out through um, the working out the numbers who would be entitled, providing there was a, a record there that proved that their money and their, their wages were controlled, their wages as well as their savings and their work. And the the elders who were born from early 1900s through to December 9, 1951 received a one-off payment of $4,000. And then the younger ones who were born from 19, January 1952 to December nineteen fifty six received a one off payment of two thousand dollars.
1: Is four thousand dollars enough?
0: Four thousand dollars no. There was a lot of anger. A lot of people were very angry because some oh look. Some people worked twenty, thirty years and have you know to have their money controlled. So
1: fifty five million dollars. On paper, in a news headline, sounds like a win for the good guys, I guess, but not everyone thought so.
2: Here's Tony. The government hasn't um, really taken it seriously enough. You know, it's something that they can uh, think that they can just throw, um, you know, throw uh, chips at uh, and that that'll solve the problem rather than going to the extra length of really. Um, showing that there is um, recognition of what happened uh, more than just, you know, paying them some money.
1: And the voices of dissatisfaction and dissent um, after this scheme of this $55 million in Queensland, they were loud enough that there was a federal government inquiry, uh, there was a report, one of the many recommendations was a confirmation that the Queensland government hadn't done enough that they needed to go back and have another look and do better.
2: You know, they they revisited the scheme and made another offer of, of some more money and I think it might have even been a little bit broader. Um, but that's still happening. And But also since there have been other people who have not accepted the offer because it's not... It's even... I think it it's still amounts to, and I, I could be wrong here, but less than $10,000 per person.
1: So that brings us just about to present day. And after I recorded the interviews for this story, there was a class action filed in Queensland. That means uh, essentially a big lawsuit with, a, well, in this case, 300 plaintiffs. And these 300 plaintiffs are claiming... The exact same thing that Leslie was
2: today. A seventy-seven-year-old Aboriginal man has taken legal action against the Queensland government to recover his stolen wages. Hans Pearson is one of three hundred elderly Aboriginal people suing the government in a class action to get back money he earned but was never
1: paid. And this is John Bottomley. He's the lawyer behind the class action. It was clearly, a breach of trust. Uh,
2: and so we're intending to take the matter to court, along with all the other people. And there's, uh, we've already got 300 claimants. So this is far from
1: over, and I think that that's in part at least because it's just at its very heart is this issue of the treatment of Aboriginal people since Australia started being called Australia and the perception and treatment of them from then until the present day. It's a whole other conversation but I did have a bit of it with Stephen.
3: Yeah, there was the idea that Aboriginal people were were doomed to disappear. Um, the the phrase "smooth the dying pillow" that that it was the white civilization as the higher races that their duty to to do that on, on the way to the inevitable extinction of Aboriginal people. And I guess the whole basis on which European colonization occurred was um, based on the idea that. You may have heard the phrase terra nullius, empty land, the idea that there weren't actually people um, whose civilization was worth being counted, I suppose. Um, That that was almost the whole basis for colonisation and it certainly did play out in lots of different ways for Aboriginal people.
1: And it's like we've said already. This is about talking about protection and that amounting To control. Was it good that they were wanting to protect Aboriginal people?
0: Well, that was the uh, the emphasis on it. But it turns out that so much for the protection. In fact, it it was it was a um, it was a form of control. Because once you were then placed on these communities, every aspect of your life was controlled.
1: So there's this historic background that looms large even now, and to me at least, it sounds like for Leslie, it was about all of those issues, and it was about addressing the conversations that are still going on around Australia, around bars and kitchen tables in living rooms, and in offices, on construction sites and the conversations are about Aboriginal people being dependent on the welfare system or lazy or, you know, we could go on. And this was a voice in that conversation.
0: It proved that we were never welfare dependent. We had a very good, strong, worth ethic and we're always being committed
1: to what we do. Leslie has released a book that details much more beautifully uh, this story and a lot of the surrounding events. She wrote it with her daughter Tammy, who you heard about earlier in the story and who played a crucial role as well. It's a pretty amazing read. The book's called Not Just Black and White. I would really love to talk to people to converse about this story and all of the others about the podcast in general, about what I'm doing right and, and what I could do better. All of this stuff is, would be so useful for me to hear about. So get in touch uh, you can tweet at me at rulebookpodcast. You can contact me via the website, uh, therulebook.xyz or Facebook, facebook.com slash rulebookpodcast or just search for the Rulebook Podcast on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening once again. As I mentioned earlier, this thing uh, takes a lot of work for me and so it would be really fantastic to have some contribution financially from you if you're in a position to offer it. $2 a month is uh, the starting point, and it goes up from there, as do the wonderful perks. I think that the main perk is the sh- the, the program that you're listening to right now. And so that's at patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash the rule book. Anyway, this episode was produced and everything to buy me, uh, music by me. Thank you to. The interviewees, Stephen Gray from Monash University, Tony Woodgett from the Queensland Public Interest Law Clearinghouse and, of course, Leslie Williams...
0: Trixie Studio.